Let's turn together to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to read the whole chapter, verse 1 to 28. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the, root, uh, by the roots Before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever." for all ages to come. 
Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn now to your word, the scriptures which you have inspired and which are light to our feet, and the guide to our paths, Lord. Lord, I pray that this morning you would open up our understanding, that you would help us to see what it is that we need to see in this chapter, what you intend for us to see in this book. Lord, I pray that you would break down our false ideas, that you would guide us into all truth, and help us to understand your ways and your word more clearly and more deeply. For Lord, you have given your word for a reason and that your name might be glorified among us. So we pray, Lord, that now you would minister to us through your word and you would help us as we wrestle with it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, I said that we would be taking two Sundays on Daniel chapter 7. And that first we were going to look at the details and the interpretive issues that are involved in Daniel chapter 7. And that's what we did last week. So if you remember last week we read this chapter and we discussed some of the details and some of the major interpretation problems of the chapter. We looked at the nature of the beasts, the four beasts, their identity and that they're consecutive in order. And we also talked about the nature and the timing of the coup d'etat that is in this chapter when, the, when God blo gives a blow to the state or gives a blow to the dominion 
of man gives a blow to that fourth kingdom and replaces that kingdom with his kingdom and gives that kingdom to his saints. So we looked at those interpretive details. But I said that next week we we're going to look at this chapter again and we're going to discuss its ultimate meaning. Now that we've looked at its details, now that we sort of have a general idea of what the, what the chapter is saying, this morning we're going to reflect on why this chapter is here, why this chapter is given, what this chapter means, what is its significance. And there's reason to do that. Because many times, perhaps in the Bible, it's easy to see the significance of a text once you know what a text is saying in its details. Uh, maybe you read a story, say, of King David killing Goliath, and you can read that and you can kind of see what's being said. Maybe you could miss the significance and the meaning there too. Especially, it's easy to miss the significance and the, de the significance of what's being said in these apocalyptic sections. Because sometimes these apocalyptic sections seem like it's just a bunch of strange details that are thrown at us. And okay, even after I understand it's talking about, you know, Babylon and it's talking about Persia, it's talking about Greece and Rome, and it's giving, what's the point? What is the reason that th these details are being given? And this is a problem for many people. A lot of people shy away from the study of prophecy or the study of eschatology because they don't see the meaning and they don't see the point. What's the point of studying that? We've got the gospel. Let's just stick to the gospel, the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. Let's camp right there. Why do we have to move away from that stuff to you know, speculative timing details about who's who and what's what and what's gonna happen when? Let's just, okay, it's in the Bible, but let's just stay with the good stuff. But that's really a problem, isn't it? Because that's, that kind of thinking thinks that Prophecy and eschatology in these apocalyptic visions aren't about the gospel, that you have to leave the gospel, leave meaning, leave significance, and put those on hold while you go study these details. And that's not at all uh, what God intended when he gave us these texts. The Bible tells us that all scripture is given for our training in righteousness. All scripture is given for our instruction in understanding who God is and who, in his goodness and his ways no less these apocalyptic sections. So if you feel that way about these apocalyptic sections, if you don't like these apocalyptic sec sections because you just don't see the meaning of it, the problem is not with these sections, the problem is with you. That's, it's, it's you that needs to get more understanding in these sections. And so that's what I hope we're going to do this morning. We're going to reflect and think about the meaning of this chapter. So I've entitled this sermon, Why Eschatology is All About the Gospel. Why eschatology or prophecy details like this, why is it all about the gospel? Not just why Daniel 7 is all about the gospel, and we're going to look at that, but what we're going to look at this morning applies to all these sections. Why is eschatology all about the gospel? Now, there are different ways Christians answer this question, why eschatology is all about the gospel. Here's one way that Christians seek to, to answer the question, those that do seek to answer, those who aren't saying, yeah, let's just, let's just not deal with those sections because they don't have gospel significance. How do Christians try to see gospel significance in them? Here's one way. They look at these sections, like Daniel chapter 7, 
and they say, yep, these are, this is apocalyptic genre, which of course is highly symbolic, but it's pointing to concrete, real things, real events, real kingdoms. But it's all about the gospel because all of the, the details here is about the past. In fact, it's about the first century. It's about first century events. And that's one way that Christians seek to say that these sections are about the gospel. They say all these details, four kingdoms, four beasts, ten horns, one horn, three horns uprooted, all of that. It's about the gospel because it's, all, it's speaking about past events in the apocalyptic genre, which lead up to the cross, which lead up to Jesus. And that's how it's about the gospel, because it's concerning with the events of the first century. Now, I have to say two things about that kind of an answer. Why people would, that way that people uh, seek to bring gospel meaning into it. First of all, and I've said this many times, I don't believe that you can account for all the details in these sections in the first century. That's the first thing I'll say about it. There's too many details that one would have to gloss over to try to make all of this fit into the first century. But that's not even the main reason why this is not a good way to bring gospel meaning into it. The real reason that this is, that this is not the answer is because a thing doesn't have to have gospel meaning only if it's in the first century, right? It can be significant to the gospel if it's in another century, if it's in another time. And you don't have to just say it has gospel significance because it's a first century issue or the first century thing. That's basically saying the only thing that has gospel significance is what happened at the time when Jesus died. And really, we, can, we, we are able to see gospel significance in other times as well. And we need to reflect on this chapter in a deeper way. And there's another way you can look at it. You can see this as, a, as not talking about the first century, and you can see it having gospel significance. And let's think about that together. So those two reasons. One, it doesn't account for the details. And two, there's gospel significance outside of the first century. Another way that Christians try to bring uh, meaning into these sections is called the idealistic way. The idealistic way. And what that, what that means is that these apocalyptic sections, these prophecies, are not talking about real events at all. They're not talking about the first century or the future. They're not dealing with real events or real nations and real kingdoms. They're just allegories that are explaining spiritual realities. It's just about spiritual realities. And you're not to look into history or the future to try to see when this is going to happen. It's just, a, it's just an allegory like C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia. It's just, there's four beasts, you know, just like Lewis had all these beasts and they had talked and, the, and, and the, one of the beasts died and they came back to life and all. This is not real. It's just fiction, but it has a spiritual value. It's idealism. It's the ideas here that matter, how it points to these ever-present spiritual realities. Now, I would say a few things about this. Um, first of all, I would say that that is ignoring what the apocalyptic genre is all about and how the Bible uses apocalyptic genre. We've got lots of examples in the Bible where God gives a dream in an apocalyptic genre, and it absolutely has to do with real events, right? It's not just an allegory that's fictional that's just showing ever-present spiritual realities. 
that these things are symbols, yes, but they're symbols about concrete, real things that will actually take place in God's determined plan. So that's one thing I would say about that, is that it's ignoring or misunderstanding the apocalyptic genre. But perhaps more importantly, I would say this, that everything in the Bible is, uh, is showing us ever-present spiritual reality. Okay, you don't have to create a fictional story to show spiritual reality that's true for all times and all places, right? We can read a story in the Bible of, of um, someone being stoned for their faith in Jesus Christ, like Stephen. That's a real story. But that story is showing us ever-present spiritual reality that's, that applies and that we can learn from and, and uh, apply to our own 21st century, right? So everything in the Bible shows us spiritual things and reality. So that's what, I, that's what I would say about this, why this is not the right way to bring gospel meaning into these sections. It's overlooking the details, overlooking the apocalyptic genre, missing what God is saying, and, and missing the point that it's all supposed to teach us these things. All stories, all historical events. All of these ways are missing the obvious fact written across the entire Bible as to why eschatology has gospel meaning. What is that fact? And I'm going to make this statement this morning. Eschatology is all about the gospel because eschatology is all about Israel. Now that's a controversial statement that many Christians don't agree with. But I'd like you this morning to consider this statement. Just consider and reflect and put on your thinking cap this morning. Eschatology is all about the gospel and has gospel meaning because the events that it is speaking about are events that have to do with Israel. See, there's a story in the Bible that Christians miss. That's a fact. There's a story in the Bible, and many Christians miss this story, that runs from Genesis to Revelation, that involves people like Abraham, David, and the son of David. It's the story of a relationship between God and his people, Israel. There's a story in the Bible, dear brothers and sisters, that we often miss. This romance I mean, read Ezekiel 16 and talk about a romantic story. This relationship between God and this particular people, Israel, that he brought out of Egypt. It's a story of election. It's a story of love. It's a story of betrayal. It's a story of adultery. It's a story of unrelenting pursuit. It's a story of redemption. And what you think about this story what you think about this relationship between God and Israel is going to affect what you think about eschatology, isn't it? What, what, what do you do with that relationship between God and Israel? How many of you acknowledge that at least in the Old Testament there's a relationship between God and a particular people, right? And what you think about that relationship is going to affect what you think about eschatology, just like in a story, what you think about the beginning of a story and the middle of the story is going to affect what you think about the end of the story, right? And here's, there's, a, there's a story that runs through the Bible. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. 
And now we're talking about the meaning of the end. Well, what do you think about the meaning of the beginning? What do you think about the meaning of the middle? It's been rightly said by so many that Israel, uh, so many on every side of this issue, that Israel is the key to eschatology. What you think about them will determine what you think about eschatology. Horatius Bonar, one of my favorite theologians, Scottish uh, minister from the 1800s, said this, the prophecies concerning Israel are the keys to all the rest. True principles of interpretation in regard to them will aid us in disentangling and illustrating all prophecy together. What a statement he's making. We often talk about how difficult it is to understand prophecy. Well, he's saying, you want to disentangle and illustrate all prophecy? You, you need to get the true principles of interpretation in regards to them. False principles as to them will most thoroughly perplex and overcloud the whole word of God. God's purpose regarding our world can only be understood by understanding God's purpose as to Israel. True, right? And I think both sides would say the same thing to the other. One side would say, look, you're misunderstanding Israel, that's why you're misunderstanding the whole thing. And the other side would say the same thing. You're misunderstanding Israel, so you're misunderstanding the whole thing. So I'm, really not, I'm not stating something that's controversial when I say that Israel is the key to eschatology. John MacArthur said, if you don't get Israel right, you'll never get eschatology right. Uh, Willem Van Gemmeren in the Westminster Theological Journal, which is a highly reformed journal, he said this, Israel is the hermeneutical crux in the interpretation of prophecy. Now here's the thing that I find remarkable. Many today, and not just today, but many Christians believe that God's relationship with Israel has come to an end. Many Christians think that God's relationship with Israel, it's over. In any special sense. Israel is a non-issue. Israel has no bearing on eschatology. Uh, except, you know, the fact that we believe Israel is no more, that affects how we relate to eschatology. But when I read prophecies in Daniel 7 or Daniel 8 or Daniel 12, when I read Revelation, the issue of Israel has no bearing on that. I approach those books understanding that it's not about Israel because I understand that Israel and God are no more. George Murray, a theologian who believes this, says this about Israel, which I find remarkable. To be sure, the nation of Israel was sovereignly chosen by God, but God no longer deals with them as a chosen nation. Amazing. And this is, he's a spokesman here for many in the Christian church. Yeah, they were sovereignly chosen by God and there was something going on there, but they are no longer. God no longer, which means he used to deal with them as a chosen nation. He no longer deals with them as a chosen nation. Many people believe that. Herman Ritterboss, famous Reformed theologian from Holland, says this, National Israel is nothing other than the empty shell from which the pearl has been removed and which has lost its function 
in the history of redemption. Amazing. National Israel is just a shell the pearl's been taken out. And notice this, they've lost their function in the history of redemption. They once had a function in the history of redemption, as every scholar must admit who reads the Old Testament. But they don't have a function in the history of redemption anymore. And so when you read Daniel and Revelation, you're not thinking Israel. This is, I think, everyone on every side of this debate will admit this is a pretty big deal, right? This is going to really affect how you think about the Bible, what you think about Israel. It's really significant about what you're going to think about the rest. Basically, in this view, Israel was a boat that God used to cross a river. And when he got to the other side of the river, thank you, I'm done with you, and he burns the boat, or he just leaves the boat there on the side. So it has a temporary use, okay? In the journey that God is going on, he uses Israel as a boat or temporarily to cross one river, and then he goes on without them. Thank you, you got me this far. You showed the world about sin. You showed the world about rebellion. You showed the world about uh, breaking the covenant. You showed the world you're desert worthy of being cast off and rejected. Adieu. Thank you. Kind of stinks to be the boat, doesn't it? Now, other people in the Christian church say, hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on a minute. God made unconditional promises to that nation, to that boat, okay? When he stepped into that boat, he made promises to the boat. And he promised the boat more than just crossing that river and then leaving it there, okay? He didn't say to the boat, I'm just going to use you temporarily, and then I'm gonna, when I'm done with you, I'm, we're done. And he made promises to that boat that have more that are, there's more to it than that in his promises. God's relationship with Israel is not just about showing everyone how sinful human beings are. That's one thing that's involved in this relationship. But God's relationship with Israel is about showing the integrity of a promise-keeping God. Okay? That when he, when he got into that boat... The point wasn't just to show how sinful everybody is in Israel. The point was to show his integrity as a promise-keeping, loving, gracious God. This is about grace. This story isn't over. Now, there's only one response to this, okay? The people that object and they say, Hold on, God made promises to Israel. We can't go down that road, Herman Ritterboss. We can't go down that road, George Murray, because God made promises to Israel. And if, if you acknowledge that God made unconditional promises to Israel that extend beyond that river, then if you acknowledge those promises were made, the, 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 the issue is over. Israel isn't over if he made promises to them. So there is only one response that these people can make. The only thing that they can say in response is that God didn't make promises to the boat beyond the river. That's the only thing they can say. God didn't make promises to Israel beyond the river. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy 9.
I'd like to just briefly point out that this really seems like an absurd claim to say that God didn't make promises to Israel beyond the river. And we're just going to briefly point out a few things. I'd like to say this. It seems to me when I read the Old Testament that everywhere, everywhere, it, the impression one receives everywhere in the Old Testament is that God chose this nation, brought them out of Egypt for this reason, okay? And this is what he told them. We're not going to go to all the texts. But in Exodus chapter 6, when Moses goes to them, he tells them, this is why we're here, okay? And that the reason why we're here, the reason why God has done this, is for none other reason than the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of what I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's why we're here. That's why we're in relationship. That's why we are together, is because of the covenant with your fathers, which we all should know was an unconditional covenant that had its uh, horizon set on forever, right? That's what the Abrahamic covenant is. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Why them is the question I would like to ask. Why them? Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. I'm in Daniel 9. One sec here. And verse 5. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. So why did you come in to possess the land? Let's rule out one thing, because you were righteous. It's not why. Okay? God gave them the land, not because they were righteous. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Okay, so let's get one thing straight. The reason why I'm giving you this land, one reason is I want to kick out the guys that are in it, because they're really wicked. Okay, that's fair. That's one reason why God's doing this. Why does he use this people? Why is he using the Hebrews? Why doesn't he use the Assyrians or someone else to kick out the Canaanites? It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And here, look at the last thing he says in verse 5, because he could have done this with another nation. He could have done it with an earthquake. He could have done it with a tornado or whatever. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. You're stubborn, you're sinful, you're no good, they're no good, I'm going to kick them out. But it's all to confirm the oath that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's what this is really all about. This relationship with God and Israel has to do with a covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's unconditional, and that is everlasting. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles. Go to the Psalms and turn left. And you'll hit 1 Chronicles 16, verse 15. 
This is a remarkable day in Israel. This is when King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle that he, that he set up. And this is a huge party in Israel. I mean, David's given away bread and raisin cakes, and he's make, he just wants everyone to celebrate. <laughs> and actually, that's, he, he sings a song here on this day. Look at verse 8. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all of his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those that seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember, verse 15, his covenant forever. The words which he commanded to a thousand generations, which we're not supposed to go on a calendar and tick off a thousand and say, okay, we're coming to an end soon. This is, means forever. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, he also confirmed it to Jacob for a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. This is what they're rejoicing about on this glorious day. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel as an everlasting covenant. What was it all about? What's the covenant about? I will give you this land. As an everlasting covenant. This is the promise that God gave to them. And turn to chapter 17, just in the next chapter. 1 Chronicles 17. Now this is a famous chapter. This is an important chapter. This is when God establishes this covenant with David, which is simply a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant and in adding to it some more details. But he's confirming the Abrahamic covenant here in chapter 17. Climactic chapter here. And look what God says in verse... Uh, now, David wants to build a house for God here. David said, God, I'm sitting here in a nice temple. I'm sitting here in a palace, and you're sitting in a tent. God, I want to make you a beautiful home. And look what uh, God says in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word? Have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And now look what he says in verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, because that's kind of been Israel's history since they got into the land. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will subdue all your enemies. 
So God promises to David right here, I'm going to basically settle Israel and no one will ever harm them. This is what he promises them. And look what David responds, and we'll just jump down to verse 21. Verse 21. And what one nation in the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make you a name by great and terrible things. Now we see that this is about God's name and reputation, okay? This is ultimately about God's reputation, what he's doing with them. In driving out nations from before your people whom you have redeemed out of Egypt. Now look at verse 22, very important. For your people, Israel, you made your own people temporarily. How long shall they be his people? And you, O Lord, became their God. My dear brothers and sisters, here we see that God brought Israel out of Egypt and made them his people. I mean, when he said to Pharaoh, my firstborn, my people, let them go. And he said, who's the God of Israel? Who's the God of the Hebrews? That he took these people to be his people forever. This is an unconditional and everlasting promise. I'm not going to even go to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, there's just too much there to talk about God's everlasting, unconditional relationship with his people Israel that is based upon the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's the issue. If God made these promises to them, that settles the issue forever, doesn't it? If, we can, if, we, if you can answer the affirmative, did God make an unconditional, everlasting promise to that people? If you can say yes, the issue is settled, isn't it? He has, and obviously it's going to have a bearing on our eschatology. There's only one response to this that can be brought forth, and this is what is brought forth, and it's remarkable. And this is the answer that the opposition must give and has to reckon with, and I don't think that they really have uh, thought about how significant this response or this objection is. The only response to this would be, it's some kind of a trick. It's a trick. What I mean is, yes, God led them to believe that he had made an unconditional everlasting covenant with them. Yes, they, they were led to believe that. Yes, they thought that was the case, didn't they? But it wasn't. He didn't make promises with them. They just thought he did. And brothers and sisters, let's be very, very clear on this. The people, the nation of Israel, really do think that God made an everlasting covenant with them, okay? They really do think that. That's not Christians saying that. That's them saying, yeah, God made an everlasting covenant with us based on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all that we could say in response to that if we were going to reject that is say, that's what you think. <clears throat> that's not really how it is. How many of you have ever seen the common illustration where people uh, want to illustrate trust? And they'll say, hey, Keith, come on up here. And you don't have to actually get up here. And they'll say, turn around and you, you look that way. Don't, you know, you, you close your eyes and look that way. And I'm behind you. And, hey, Keith, I will catch you, right? You just fall backwards and, and I will catch you. 
And so Keith, okay, and, okay, I trust Eli. It's going to illustrate this thing. And, and so Keith closes his eyes and falls back. And imagine he just slams on the floor, okay? <laughs> and everyone in the audience goes, oh, what? <laughs> and I say, well, it, you just lied to Keith. You know, you just, he trusted you. And you tricked him, or you lied to him. He said, I didn't lie to him. I didn't lie to him. I wasn't thinking of that, Keith. Right? I wasn't thinking of that, Keith. In my mind, when I said, I'll catch you, Keith, I was thinking of a different Keith. Okay? He misunderstood. <laughs> now, not only did I fool Keith, who else did I fool? The entire audience. Keith and the entire audience thought I meant him. And so when I didn't catch him, everyone was shocked. And I can say, well, I, w I really didn't think him in my mind. It, it was a, everyone said, that's a dirty trick. And this is exactly how it is if what these Dutch Reformed people are saying is true. Because Israel itself, as a nation, thought God meant them. And not only Israel, my friends, but all the world, and even to this day, 21st century, the world thinks Bible says God made covenant with Israel forever. One of the reasons, by the way, people don't believe in God, one of the reasons why a lot of Jews don't believe in God and the world's kind of gone with them, this is just a fictional story. Didn't really do it, did he? He didn't really make a covenant with them. Look at all the bad things they've gone through. As Christians, we should say, no, the bad things they've gone through is because they're in covenant with God, right? But people don't seem to see that. Moses says to Israel, right on his deathbed, after he said, you guys are rebellious, God knows you're not going to do it, God knows you're not going to keep the commandments, but at the end, he blesses Israel, he blesses each tribe, and you know what he says to them? He says, he blesses them, he says, God loves you, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's what he says to this nation before he dies. My dear friends, take heart, may God bless you, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Well, Underneath are the everlasting arms, and Israel is trusting in that. And are we to say that, yeah, that's not really true. It's kind of a trick, because that's exactly what it is if we maintain that God didn't make promises to Israel. If you maintain that the boat is no more, that he, he used the boat to cross the river, but not anymore, you have to reckon with this fact, that the boat and the rest of the world think that they've been gypped by God. You have to reckon with that. The boat and the rest of the world, if that's true what you're saying, they've been gypped by God. And brothers and sisters, none would buy it. And God cares about his reputation, especially in the eyes of the audience. Right? You've got to read, the, you know when you read the Old Testament, you see that. We are correct if we believe that God made promises to Israel. And thus the foundation of our message is either God keeps his promises or God breaks his promises. The Bible is a story, a relationship between God and Israel that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Right now we're somewhere between the middle and the end. The Old Testament begun that relationship. Jesus came in the middle to Israel and the Bible tells us that he died for the sins of that nation Jesus sent 
the preachers, after he was rejected by that nation, he sent preachers into all the world to preach the gospel. And somewhere in the mix, the Christians who were preaching the gospel forgot all about Israel in this story. But eschatology is all about the gospel because it's all about Israel. And I'm going to say this. Eschatology is all about the gospel because it's about Israel because in order for God to fulfill his promises to Israel that he gave them, it requires the radical intervention of the grace of Jesus Christ for the only for only by the bringing in of righteousness, as we're going to see as we go on in Daniel, for only by the bringing in of righteousness to that nation can the nation be blessed and the promise be fulfilled that they would be blessed and be a blessing to the whole world. As we believe as Christians, that life and blessing depends upon righteousness and the fulfilling of God's promise to them to bless them and to plant them safely and to make them a blessing depends upon righteousness. And we know Israel's not righteous. And we know Israel's never going to be righteous by the law. And so the fulfilling of the Abrahamic promise to Israel requires the intervention of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring in that blessing. It's salvation as we know it as Christians on a national scale. Their salvation is a type of our individual salvation, and our individual salvation is a type of that nation's salvation. Otherwise, eschatology would in fact be unrelated and speculative. It wouldn't really make any sense at all. Now, I'm going to say this before we move on, that someone might say, look, I, why do I need the Israel as a type? I already, I'm a Christian. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that... I can't be righteous by keeping commandments and being good. And I understand the big story. You're talking about a story, Eli. You're talking about a story between God and Israel. Well, I understand the story we sing about all the time, the wondrous story of Jesus' love for me. He came out of heaven, died for my sins. Uh, he saved me. That's a beautiful, so beautiful story. Why do I need that story when I've got this story? Someone might ask, don't I have enough? It would seem so, but I would say no, you don't. And here's why. I'm not saying that you have to know the story of God's relationship to Israel to be saved. I'm not saying that. Because you can go to someone's house, you can share that you're a sinner, all of we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and you believe and you're saved, and that person can believe and be saved. That's wonderful. And that's how it often happens. You just get saved hearing that gospel. But what happens when you hear the other story? Yeah, the Bible says other things too, doesn't it? And the Bible, and, and this Christian who has never read the Bible, he's all excited about the gospel, and he starts reading the Old Testament. And he's saying, yeah, God made all these promises to Israel. And here's the thing. If you get the story with Israel wrong, why should you trust the story with Jesus? Maybe at first, maybe before you know the story of Israel, everything's fine, Right? You don't know anything about Israel. You just know, hey, he loves me, great, fine. But once you start learning the story of Israel, which God has invested his name in, and you realize, and you're taught that, you know, he started, he ended, he promised, it was a trick. And then you realize, wait, God's a trickster? God did that? How can I be sure that I can put my confidence and my trust in Jesus then? 
So, yes, it's important to know the story of Christ, but we can only have confidence in Jesus Christ if we have confidence in the integrity of God. And dear brothers and sisters, God has put his name on the line with Israel. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, that's how it is. So you need this story. Now, what does all this have to do with Daniel chapter 7? According to what we've said, it has everything to do with Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we're just going to briefly look at it now in closing here. Daniel chapter 7 is a story about Israel. If it's eschatological, if, if we're tracking together, it's a story of God's relationship to Israel. All of Daniel really deals with this, and it's a type of salvation. Daniel has a vision in the sovereignty of God. Four beasts arise. Unlike, Dan, unlike chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar, who is a total pagan, gets a vision from God, and without, you know, he's a pagan without Old Testament theology and Old Testament background, so God gives him a vision that he could understand, you know, these glorious images and medals. God gives a vision to Daniel of the same situation, but shown to Daniel, we get more, more theological significance here. These symbols that we see in Daniel chapter 7 would invoke certain ideas to a Jew like Daniel or to any Jew who's reading it, anyone versed in the Old Testament. And often the symbols that we see here are lost to our modern, the modern mind because we're not in an ancient setting. None of us are really shepherds, so we kind of miss it. But I want you to contemplate here in Daniel chapter 7. Let's just go there real quick. He sees a lion, he sees a bear, he sees a leopard. And all of these creatures are dangerous creatures that will hurt you and will hurt your flocks, right? And these dangerous creatures would not exist if it wasn't for the curse, if it wasn't for the sin of the world and the fallen world. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar maybe not, wouldn't think that if he saw it, but Daniel certainly would. These creatures terrorize people and they terrorize flocks. They are symbols of God's punishment. They are an expression of his wrath, okay? And... If you turn with me to Hosea chapter 13, I'm sure that Daniel would have probably thought about this as Hosea prophesied this before his time, before Daniel's time. Just, it's the book, next to, <clears throat> the book next to Daniel. Hosea chapter 13. We'll do a little bit of flipping around here. Hosea 13, verse 7 and 8. And here we see that God punishes the flock of Israel. God punishes his people with nations, right? God uses other nations as his tools of punishment. But here's how he describes them in 13, 7, and 8. I, but, he, but of course, these nations are ex an expression of his wrath. So he says, I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear them, tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear. God's basically saying, because you sin against me, I'm going to be like wild creatures. Lion, leopard, bear. I'm going to be like this to you. Not because God's going to actually step out of heaven and act like that, but because he's going to use nations. And then he comes, then we go to Daniel 7, and you've got the nations that are judging Israel. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, these are all pictured as ferocious animals. So what's the meaning and significance of Daniel 7 so far? That God, it's demonstrating God's relationship to Israel in his wrath and in his justice. 
For at Mount Sinai, when God entered into that covenant with them of the law, God said, if you disobey, this is going to happen to you. I'm going to send nations against you. They're going to terrorize you. They're going to punish you. They're going to kill you. You're going to be kicked out of your land. You're going to be scattered to the nations. And so God is doing exactly what he said he would do in the, in the covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai. In Daniel chapter 9, in the prayer of Daniel, he acknowledges it. He says, oh Lord, we are here in Babylon because of our sins against the covenant and you have punished us just as you said. In Nehemiah chapter 9, this is during the days of the Persians, Nehemiah prays to God and said, God, we are here back in Israel, yes, but we're, we're slaves to the Persians. We can't do anything freely. We're terrorized by our enemies and it's all because we broke the covenant and you're being faithful to your covenant. The story of God with Israel demonstrates that God is a just God who punishes sin and he's doing it. Mount Sinai, if you read the, the threats God gives to Israel at Mount Sinai, there's an there's a ascendancy and in intensity, right? First it says, I'll take away this, I'll take away that, and if you still don't repent, I'll take away this, and if you still don't repent, then I'm really going to do something bad, and if you still don't repent, I'm going to scatter you to the nations, and if even there, you know, it's just there's an ascendancy of punishment. It gets worse and worse and worse. And here in Daniel chapter 7, what Daniel is seeing in his vision is that the punishment against Israel reaches its peak in this fourth kingdom. What Daniel sees is what scholars call the time of Jacob's trouble. Actually, they're, bar they're borrowing a phrase from the book of Jeremiah. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets talk of a a final time of indignation of God against his people for their sins. And that final time of indignation will be so bad, but it's through that time that God will at last deliver them and redeem them and save them. So the prophets don't just say, God's gonna smash you and that's the end of the story. He says, you're, you're gonna have, you're, God's gonna bring you into a final time of indignation, but he will save you and not make an entire end to you. In Daniel 7, 28, it tells us that Daniel goes pale. In Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah says that anyone who, God says through Jeremiah, anyone who, who sees this tribulation, anyone who sees what's going to happen is going to go pale. That's what Jeremiah says. You're going to go pale when you see this. What's the reason for all these grown men going pale, acting like they're women in labor? It's because it's the time of Jacob's trouble, the final time of indignation against them for their breaking of the covenant. Yet God is going to save them miraculously. We have a theme here in the prophets and in this vision of indignation against Israel, but salvation. This results in their conversion. We might ask, why does Israel go all the way to that end? Why do they have to get so bad? And why couldn't they just repent somewhere in the middle? God is illustrating by Israel that human beings left to themselves will not obey. And if God doesn't step in to intervene, we're just going to get, we're, the punishment will never end, right? There's just, it's just going to, yeah, why did God do it that way with worse and worse? And worse? So what we would see, well, why didn't they just stop at A or B or say, well, no, it's got to go. And God, of course, could do even worse. He could annihilate them all together, but for his covenant with Abraham, he doesn't. You and I, brothers and sisters, should learn from this, that we would also be destroyed were it not for the grace of God. 
And you and I are not saved because we just did better than Israel. We should learn from them. It would just be worse and worse bad until I go to hell were it not for the grace of God. Daniel saw the fourth beast waging war against what he says, this, he calls them the saints, in the Aramaic, the holy ones. And he says that the fourth, the fourth kingdom is actually winning. Look at verse 18. The angel says, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Look at verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the holy ones or the saints and overpowering them. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints or the holy ones of the highest one. Uh, look at verse 25. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. They, the saints, will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time, look at verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given, now he modifies the statement here, the phrase, will be given to the people of the saints. Now what's that mean? Who are the people of the saints? The Am Kodesh, the people of the holy ones, the holy ones people. Who is that people? And Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12 for the vision here in chapter 7. Isn't the only time Daniel talks about the holy ones? Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. We'll look at verse 1 and verse 7. Now at that time, Michael, the prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, Daniel, which is, of course, Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now that's what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. When you see the abomination, that Daniel, abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, that's the time to get out of Jerusalem because there's going to be a time of trouble unlike any other. He's referring to this. And at that time, your people, your people, Daniel, will, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Look at verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time, get this, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be complete. What's this last troublous time about? And the angel says, you know what it's all about? It's about destroying their power. It's about shattering their power until they finally realize that they have no power. Once they realize that, it's over, isn't it? Then peace floods in like a river once they realize they've got nothing. If you go all the way to the law of Moses and you follow the prophets, one of the repeated offenses that God complains against Israel is that they think that they have power. And in the Deuteronomic curses if you sin against me i'm going to send famine and pestilences and war you're going to eat your kids and i'm going to scatter you to the nations it explicitly says and i'm going to do this so that you stop thinking you have power stop thinking you have strength stop thinking that you can stand on your own so there's a connection here with the law of moses because israel has perpetually thought haven't they that we can take this by our own strength and by our own power God tells them, go in and possess the land. We can't do it. They're too strong. Why do you think that? Because you're thinking about your own power. Or later on, uh, we can trust in Egypt to save us. 
from our enemies. Why are you thinking that? Because Egypt's powerful and you know, we're not powerful. How come you aren't thinking about me, God, protecting you? We don't consider you in the equation. We just think about what we can humanly do. And after God shows them, no, I'm in control and I wipe them out, then they move their strategy to, okay, we can be righteous then. We'll just be righteous. And if we're righteous, God will protect us. We're going to be right. We're going to keep the commandments. We are going to do it. And if we do it, God will protect us. Nope. Wiped out again, 70 AD. No power that you have. The, 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 the nation of Israel can be called holy. They're repeatedly called holy in the Old Testament because they are set apart and different because God chose them from among all the nations. So when we read saints or holy, we don't have to immediately think we're just talking about Christians or people who are righteous through faith. However, the, that, uh, the holy people would include the nation of Israel, those who are regenerate and those who, those who are regenerate and those who aren't. Because every believer in Christ, the Bible says, has joined himself to Israel. You are a part of that holy people if you're a Christian. Even if you're a Gentile, you are part of that holy people. But let's not lose sight who that holy people is. It's the nation of Israel. This must happen with every individual, right? You realize you have nothing. You lose all your strength. You lose all your power. You lose all your hope in yourself and in your works and in your righteousness. You realize you have nothing but to look to God himself. And when that happens, God delivers you. And there's no more controversy at that point. And so God's story with Israel shows us God is a wrathful God who punishes sin. It shows us that we have no power, we have no righteousness, we have no strength. And so what would the next thing be that the story of Israel shows us? The story of God with Israel shows us the revelation of the righteousness of God that is in Jesus Christ. The salvation of God for sinful, helpless people. And for a sinful, helpless nation. This sudden, striking, miraculous intervention that changes the fortunes of the holy people, where one moment the holy people are being destroyed and then the next moment they're given the kingdom. This is a theme that runs all throughout the prophets. Israel is under punishment. Israel is under wrath. And then all of a sudden, Israel is blessed. And they're blessed because they come to understand their place before God, their sins, and they put their hope in the Christ of God. And this theme with Israel is the story of all, each and every one of us as Christians, isn't it? That we're under the curse, we're under the wrath of God, as John the Baptist says, if we don't believe. Now, was it a process for you entering into the kingdom and, and being righteous and being blessed and having life? It wasn't, was it? One moment you were under condemnation, and then you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and in that day, in that hour, you were forgiven of all of your sins. You were made righteous before God and you became a son of God and an inheritor of eternal life, entered the kingdom immediately because of one look to Jesus Christ. And so it will be for the nation as the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, tells us of these last days in the last time that they will look upon Christ whom they pierced because God will pour out upon them the spirit of grace and supplication and they will mourn for him. Our righteousness is found in Christ who died for the sins of the whole world and for the sins of that nation. It says explicitly in John chapter 11 that he died for the sins of the nation of Israel. 
We are delivered from unrighteousness and condemnation through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in him and not by our works. And so will the nation of Israel be. Why do the tables turn for them? Why do the fortunes change? Why does the holy people who are punished and condemned all of a sudden get blessed? For none other than faith in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And we see here Jesus, the one who brings in that righteousness in verse 13, here pictured as the ascended king who receives that kingdom. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us he will return to the earth in blessing to rescue his people and to usher in his kingdom on the earth and to topple all other dominions. Everyone who has believed in him will take the kingdom with Christ. People who have believed in him from all ages. There will no more be curse but a blessing. It will be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ. Israel will be blessed and all the world will be blessed because of them being blessed. Then shall the knowledge of the Lord, because this is ultimately about him, isn't it, and what we think of him, will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that, my friends, is the glorious end of the story. Then the audience, the world, will see Israel being caught by the everlasting arms. And all the world will then know, aha, God does keep his promises. As David Barron wrote, whereas the gospel's course now and all through the present period is intermittent, checkered one, and its quickening power has been experienced only by individuals. By and by, when Israel as a nation is first quickened and transformed by the gospel, and the national Saul of Tarsus is turned into a nation of Paul's, with the same burning love and self-consuming zeal for their Redeemer King, which characterized the great apostle to the Gentiles, then the blessings of Messiah's gospel and all the ben the beneficial effects of his reign will flow from Jerusalem as mighty rivers and stream into all parts of the world so that it will not be long before the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Jehovah as the waters cover the seas. So in conclusion this morning, yes, eschatology is all about the gospel, but it's about the gospel because it's about Israel's national salvation by the gospel when Israel and the world will come to see the gospel and understand who God is. This is the key to prophecy. We are involved in a remarkable story, brothers and sisters. God's plan is to reverse the curse and bless the entire world, and he's chosen to do it this way. Each one of us has been blessed. If you're a Christian, you can say amen. You have been blessed, and you can be a blessing by spreading the gospel. You can be a blessing to others because you yourself have been blessed. But for the time being, while our progress in the world is checkered, there are one day when an entire nation that all the world is familiar with and all the world is watching what God's going to do with them because all the world have heard about this holy people. One day when they receive the gospel, then all the world will be blessed through them as God has promised. The best part of the story is the revelation of who God is because that's what it's all about. It's about 
God, that he is a righteous and a promise-keeping God. And because he is that, and because we can say as Christians, he's that in all of his promises, he's that with a promise of salvation in Jesus, but his promise with Israel, because he is a promise-keeping God, we can trust him and know that underneath are the everlasting arms. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you for your promises that you gave unconditionally by grace because we don't deserve any of it. Israel doesn't deserve any of it. The world doesn't deserve any of it. And that you love us and that you did this. Please broaden our understanding of your marvelous works and deeds. Lord, please help us to see these things that can be difficult to see and encourage us by the fact that you are a God of integrity. Thank you that we can trust in you. Thank you that you have blessed us through Jesus Christ. Please use us to be blessings to others. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will bless the whole world through Christ. You're so awesome. We praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.